children wait in the water. Gods are gonna trouble the water. See that band all dressed in white. Gods are gonna trouble the water. The leader looks like the Well, hello, and welcome back to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. Uh, in this episode, we'll be looking at uh, Olada Equiano. I think that's how it's pronounced. I, I know it's Equiano, but Oluda? Olada, maybe. That's, that's probably what it is. Um, he also went by the name Gustavus Fassa. That was his kind of European name that he took, but he identified himself in the book as both names and the African. So his identity is quite clear. This has actually been a major point of controversy about Equiano, how much of uh, it, the stuff about Africa is fabricated. Uh, maybe he was uh, more of an Atlantic Creole than we initially thought. He's always kind of grouped with the Atlantic Creoles. Of course, uh, that generation of slaves who kind of existed one foot in Africa and one foot in America that, 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 you know, not the ones who kind of dwelled in plantations, but those who kind of could migrate around and move around. Read Ira Berlin's wonderful uh, books about generations of captivity and, and many thousands gone, those two books together. The one's kind of a many thousand gone is about like the plantation and revolutionary generation, I think. Uh, mostly, but in Generations Captivity, it's a shorter book, but he talks about five generations uh, of American slavery. And the first is the Creole generation. Uh, I talked about this a little bit in the last episode, but the, the idea here is that these people are of Africa and of the Atlantic at the same time. Um, and that's obviously not the fate of most enslaved men and women. Mostly they, they were sent to plantations. But in the early days of slavery, this was more common. Early days of Atlantic, transatlantic slavery, I should say. Obviously, slavery has been around for a long time. But uh, but Equiano is a, in the plantation generation formally, but he's more Creole because he, he dwelt on ships. He was a slave on ships. And although he went to plantation areas, he largely worked as a sailor on different jobs which gave, helped, gave, helped him gain literacy, helped him gain his freedom, um, and, you know, helped him be more Europeanized uh, in a way different than, I think, the plantation uh, generation was Europeanized through, through, through the, the conditions of being separated from their culture, right? It's maybe more, they're more Americanized, and maybe someone like Equiam could be more Europeanized, I suppose. Now... I don't want to get into controversy. I'm going to take Equiano's word for it. I don't want to second guess him too much. That's not really the point here. Um, but it may come up a little bit in the in the series. Now, obviously, I'm very anxious to get to American slavery, um, and we will in the next episode where I'll look at Nat Turner and maybe I'll do. I don't know. Actually, next episode I got to finish up with Equiano, but after that, I I don't know. The page the the page numbers here are really kind of stressing me out here. Um, maybe I'll just do one on the Nat Turner and then one on Frederick Douglass. That's 
that's that'll be fine because I'm skipping William Wells Brown, which I already did. Um, anyways, this is uh, let's jump into it. This book has about twelve. I think it's twelve chapters. It's published in kind of two volumes. Uh, the first volume really deals with uh, Africa and the, the horrors of slavery, his experiences as a slave, and I guess part two is more about his journey towards freedom. Right now, unlike the Gronosaw text we looked at last time, Equiano is clearly an an anti-slavery, an anti-slave trade voice, right? Although his experiences are, have some similarities with those of, of Gronosau. For instance, Equiano seems to be grateful of his Christ, being Christianized, which, of course, anyone who converts to Christianity and is a true believer probably is grateful for that, right? Even whatever conditions they, they go that, that got them there. Now, unlike Gronisau, he doesn't really talk about his Christianity in terms of like, like this, in, as the the benefit that comes from the torture and the horrors of slavery, right? For Equiano, these are sort of separate things. Um, I think he does at one point sort of say, you know, at least I got a became Christian out of this or something like that, but he's not balancing it. He's not seeing it as like a, a payment for uh, a boon that he received. He does, he is critical of slavery throughout, especially when he talks about the plantations. Um, he, you know, some readers may look at this and look at his own experiences and, and compare it to the plantations, which Equiano obviously explicitly does in the text, and find, you know, that he's got a, he got relatively lucky Right, and that you know he he had he was he had to put his life life in danger, of course, because he was active during the Seven Years' War at sea, and there was a lot of naval fighting. He was involved in naval engagements and things, so that's um, obviously a risk to his life that he probably wouldn't have put himself into if he had the f the freedom of choice. Um, but nonetheless, he's not dying in a, in a plantation in in the Caribbean, right? Um, or, or the places he visits. So let's. We're just going to look at the first volume of this book, for for now. Um, now, we got a preface, um, where where he's just introducing why he's writing this text. Now, of course, there's going to be many slave narratives that. Uh, be written um, and Gronosau's preface was written by someone else Equiano's was was written by himself and it's short and and they all seem to include that a kind of a, an apology I guess is one way to think about this and I think Equiano's might be the first um, kind of apology we have here um, and here he does try to warm himself to his Christian audience he writes Permit me with the greatest deference and respect to lay at your feet the following genuine narrative, the chief design of which is to excite your august assemblies a sense of compassion for the miseries by which the slave trade is entailed on my unfortunate countrymen. Remember, he identifies himself as an African. So he's talking about that. Um, by the horrors of that trade, I was torn away from all the tender connections that were naturally dear to my heart, 
But these, through the mysterious ways of providence, I ought to regard as infinitely more than compensated by the introduction I have hence obtained to the knowledge of the Christian religion. End quote. And that's what I referred to before, where he does see Christianity as some good that comes out of this. But he's cl this is clearly from page one, an anti-slavery document. Right? Now, he's also trying to uh, appeal to his audience. Now, we get the whole list of subscribers here. I don't know if every edition includes this. This is like a formal part of the text. It's what we have here. And it's like, it's like 10 pages of subscribers, um, single-spaced, including the Duke of York, uh, the Prince of Wales. Uh, they're put on the top. They're above the A's because they're, they're royalty. Uh, but a lot of dukes, duchesses, a lot of bishops, uh, a lot of commoners as well, obviously wealthy commoners who would have subscribed to it. But... There was a lot of money put forth for this. Now, books often were published on subscription in the, in the 18th century um, where the money was collected and, and then that'd be how many would be printed, right? I, I know the encyclopedia was sort of done this way. So he must have, I don't know how he got all these connections to, uh, to this or it's just through his publisher, but um, he has these people in mind when he's writing. So his preface is going to try to appeal to them uh, and get them to change policy about the slave trade. And of course, it would not be long after this book was published that Britain would begin debating that. Uh, this was published originally in 1989, right? Sorry, not 1789. And in the early 19th century, there would be the suppression of the slave trade, if not slavery across the British Empire. Um, then we get to chapter one, and chapter one is separate from his his life in a way. We don't get um, he really talks about Africa. Um, it's really Igbo land, so he's like from, from southern modern day Nigeria at the time. The kingdom of Benin. Benin was one of the larger um, slave trading states. So he gets into the, like, the gun slave cycle. Now, I know that's been criticized by historians, but there's, you know, whenever you read these accounts, this is emphasized. So, you know, I'm not ready to throw out the entire gun slave cycle idea. I mean, Equiano thought that that's, that was integral to these kingdoms. Um, but mostly here, he's talking about the culture of the, of the, the, the society he's from. And interestingly, although he, sh he claims to be from this, and, and we're going to take his word for it that he is, but he, he often reverts to footnotes here to back up. And, and the footnotes are not like other Africans. They are of, of ethnographers or European travelers or people who, you know, who had some kind of access to Africa. Not that much, but, but from time to time, things he doesn't do later on. Right, because of course he was young when he, he was taken out of Africa. So we have discussions here of marriage and adultery. There is a, an adultery um, double standard, as you had in most cultures. Talks about public festivals, uh, the food, um, the, you know, the complexion of the people, how they looked, their religion. And, and he emphasizes that they believe in one creator, um, which I think isn't far from the truth. But you can understand why he might emphasize that for his Christian readership. But he also talks about magic, 
things like that. He explicitly compares his religion to that of of the Jews, saying like, "We also practice circumcision, um, sacrifice, burnt offerings." Um, he mentions Abraham's wife being an African. So there's efforts to try to make commonality some common ground with his readership here, even though he is doing a, a, a he's really doing ethnography in a way. So um, that's that's an interesting chapter, but it's it's not crucial to understanding his life at all. In chapter two, he talks about how uh, he was was kidnapped um, and then was sold to various people throughout. So it's a very complex story of being passed off to person to person. Uh, some treated him well, some did not treat him well, but ultimately he, he, he is sold off onto a slave ship, right? So I, this, this enslavement process in Africa was very, very complicated, right? And a theme of this book is how slavery in the Americas is different than slavery in Africa, which of course most historians think is true. It's not just like you, you got to contextualize what slavery meant uh, in in social structures. You know, could you get out? Was it hereditary? Was it race based? You know, what were the rights and responsibilities and obligations of the of the enslaved to masters and vice versa? That's all going to be based on on various cultures. Um, but he is. This is a great. In chapter two, we really get the. Um, the, the middle passage being described here and this might be one of the first accounts by an african of of the middle passage right there are accounts of the middle passage by europeans and sailors and traders and doctors and others which which i've read um and he, and he talks about it here and you know the the choice of people to to die rather than accept slavery is something he emphasizes here so he He's saying from day one, we did not want to be slaves, right? Now, eventually, he sold at Barbados. Um, and, and juxtaposes, like, the way he was treated in Africa with the way he was treated by whites uh, after, he was, uh, um, after he was sold off. I guess that's worthy of, of a close read. Um, at last, we came to the site of the island of Barbados at which the whites on board gave a great shout and many thanks of joy to us. Many signs of joy to us. We did not know what to think of this, but as the vessel drew near, we plainly saw the harbor and other ships of different kinds and sizes, and we soon anchored among them off the bridge town. Many merchants and planters now came on board. Though it was in the evening, they put us in separate parcels and examined us attentively. They also made us jump and pointed us to land, signifying where we must go. We thought by this we should be eaten by these ugly men as they appeared to us. And when soon after we were all put down on the deck again, there was much dread and trembling among us and nothing but bitter cries to be heard all the night from these apprehensions insomuch that at last the white people got some old slaves from the land to pacify us. They told us we were not to be eaten, but to work and soon to go to land where we should soon see many of our country people. Um, End quote. Um, now that's important because the assumption that they're the countrymen is, of course, false. In fact, slaves came from all over Africa. It's something Aquiano mentions very early in the account that the slave coast is the whole west coast of Africa, from from Benin all the way down to Angola. And so you're not going to actually meet your countrymen, right? You're going to meet 
those from different lands. Uh, and he says that pretty much in the next sentence, there's Africans of all languages. Um, but that's, you know, obviously this is a horrifying, terrifying experience for these people who didn't know what's going to happen to them. And it's just a mundane, everyday experience for, for the whites. Um, you don't get that same kind of feeling of terror and horror when he was being enslaved by the Africans because those are people that, you know, there wasn't a language barrier. There was, uh, a, you know, a, a culture and understanding, right, about that. And, and, and an attitude towards slavery, which, although not good, was, was, was a little bit more flexible. Um, now, he, he could have, at this point, just become a plantation slave and died like so many millions of others. And that gets us to chapter three. So in chapter three, there's not that much to say. It's just an account of how he went from the plantation to being sold to, uh, to work on a ship. Um, basically, he gets bought for something like 30 pounds, which is quite a lot of money in that day. And this is when he gets the name Gustavus Vasa. Um, and he just sort of accepts it. Um, and he, he's, because he's on a ship and he's working alongside whites. He's working alongside his master, actually. He's, he's becoming more, he, he, he starts to learn the language. He, be, he becomes friends with people or at least, uh, you know, associates and, 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 and co-workers of, of people. So it's actually, he has a very different experience than many of the people um, in the plantation, but he knows the plantation well enough, right? He was there for enough time and he would visit them because ships would go to plantation areas. Um, and eventually he goes to England too at this point. And that's what's discussed in chapter four. Um, he, he visits England and he likes England. He starts to uh, consider himself English. He starts to speak English. Um, but he gets involved via his master and his ship into uh, the, the, the Seven Years' War. He also gets Christianized at this point and, and, and baptized. Um, and that's probably worth mentioning here um, that that's, this is presented as a change in his life. Now, I, I don't think this is all just him appealing to his audience. I, I do think he's has a legitimate conversion here. It's just how it's framed and how it's contextualized might be done in a certain way to, to emphasize the equality of souls, but that, that's certainly what he does. Um, he, he, he connects becoming a Christian to becoming English. Right, quote, I no longer looked upon them as spirits, but as men superior to us, and therefore I had the stronger desire to resemble them, to imbibe their spirit, to imitate their manners. I therefore embraced every occasion of improvement. And every new thing that I observed, I treasured up in memory. And I long wished to be able to read and write. And for this purpose, I took every opportunity to gain instruction. Um, and eventually this leads to his, his Christianization. Um, now he's later sold again. Um, uh, now, when, actually, first, before we get to that, he goes on various campaigns during the... During the Seven Years' War. Yeah, and we see we read about these in like chapter three and four. Um, and at the end of the war, he thinks he's going to get his freedom. It's actually implied by his master, I think, that he's going to get his freedom, uh, that he's kind of become English, he's become Christian, he's fought in this war, he's kind of earned his freedom. But 
we learn in the next chapter, chapter five, that he's sold off to Robert King, another master, um, who doesn't really buy him just for a slave of mistreat. He actually buys him because Equiano is very impressive to him. So he's not treated horribly here, um, but it's still a very much like slaves need to work for their for their food, right? Um, but he's kind of uh, he's you know he's kind of involved in the slave trade during this time too. Uh, so he's kind of like a overseer of Africans during the slave trade that the ship was involved in. So obviously this is going to shape his experiences too about um, about about the transatlantic slave trade. Um, chapter six is maybe the highlight of the anti-slavery aspect of this of this narrative where he basically gives an, an objective account it actually parallels chapter one in a way because it's not really about him so much although he he shows up in the end of that that chapter but a lot of the chapter is him being the ethnographer again but now he's talking about the experiences of slaves in in Barbados in the Caribbean in general and he has a lot of details on the torturing the, the mistreatment um, page 121 of the Library of America is a great example of this if if you want to get into it but this is a polemic against slavery based on make, making moral arguments against slavery um, ones that are going to repeat themselves in slave narratives that, that's one thing I kind of wanted to get at here a little bit um, as I talk about this this book over this episode and next, is the the tropes in Equiano are in so many other slave narratives. The written by himself, right? The 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 journey uh, of some sort that has to take place, whether it's an escape, um, you know, the 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 mobility of the story, like people going from one place to something else, right? And that being a reawakening or a, re, uh, a remaking of who they are and their identity in a way. Uh, for most, it's like from, from slavery to freedom. Um, for Equiano, it's in some ways like pagan to Christian, I, I think. But, um, you know, ultimately you have the, the freedom narrative too. Um, and that, that comes at the end of the first volume of this book. Uh, and really, the second volume is really more about him as a as a free person and as a as a as a free Christian. Uh, I guess we have time. Let's read a little bit the, about this. Um, While I was thus employed by my master, I was often witness to cruelties in every kind, which were exercised on my unhappy fellow slaves. I used frequently to have different cargoes of new Negroes in my care for sale, and it was almost always a constant practice with our clerks and other whites to commit violent depredations on the chastity of the female slaves. Now, stop here for a second. Our clerks and other whites, uh, so he's not a part of it, but he's watching this. He's observing this. He's, in a sense, if not a direct instigator of it, he's, he's an actor in this, right? He's the overseer uh, while women are being raped. What else? Um, so he says, I was reluctant, but obliged to submit at times, being unable to help them. When we had some of these slaves on board my master's vessel to carry them to other islands or to America, 
I had known our mate to commit these acts most shamefully, to the disgrace not of Christians only, but of men. So the point I wanted to make here is, this is another trope we see in slave narratives, is uh, the sexual immorality of the slave trade and slavery itself. Right? If you remember, like in Frederick Douglass, and I'm sure we'll talk about this in a couple weeks, the, the whipping of it is, is like his aunt, right? Where she, her top is ripped off, right? And she's exposed while being violently mistreated by the, by the masters, right? And especially in Harriet Jacobs, you get the constant sexual threat of the master. Um, and so he emphasizes the rape here um, in quite stark detail. Um, but in other ways, he does kind of, that, that's something he's involved with directly. But often here, he's just talking about the experience of slaves in general. So this, these are some of the most, this is the most brutal chapter in some ways, um, I think. Well, that's chapter five, actually. Um, chapter six uh, can, do, does a lot of this. Um, the, the, the stuff about rape was in chapter five. Chapter six, where he's talking about Montserrat, that's where he, he really has the, the description of the experiences and the treatment of slaves and a defense of, of the actions of slaves uh, in, in their survival strategies. Um, so this is, by this point, if you, if you read this alongside Grosenau, you're, you're, you're clearly in a different book here. You're clearly in a book that's trying to make a moral case based on Christianity, but also like enlightenment principles of equality for why slavery is bad. Now, this chapter, chapter six, uh, yeah, that's where we're going to end for today. That's the end of volume one. Chapter six ends with um, him being kind of promised freedom, or he thinks he's going to get his freedom, and and then he doesn't get it. Um, and then he decides he's going to escape, or he at least thinks about escaping, and this creates tension between him and his master. This is set in Philadelphia, so th this book has has you know some American connections, a little bit more than Grosenau, um, and and he meets this woman Davis, who sort of tells him her future. So there's like some magic here in this chapter, where this fortune teller tells him he's not going to be a slave much longer, right? And he's not going to be a slave much longer. But before that happens, um, he's beaten uh, like nearly to death um, by, by his master and left for dead. He's thrown in jail. Um, or no, it's someone else who beats him up. But anyways, um, he tries to sue uh, the man who beat him. And he can't because he's black. So there's a legal block to him getting justice. And he's forced back into slavery. Now, in the next chapter, in chapter 7, he's going to be able to buy his freedom. Um, and he buys it for 40 pounds, which is pretty much what he was bought for initially in, in Barbados, I think it was. So the second half of the book is going to deal with the rest of his life and the other experiences he has. And... And continue the polemic against slavery, but also continue the autobiography. Um, so there'll probably be a little bit less to talk about in the second half. But anyways, that's what we have here. Um, so kind of analysis here, what to say about all this. Well, it is a really rich text of the 18th century Atlantic. Um, 
and colonial America and even things about the Seven Years' War. Uh, Africa, uh, the experience of Africans, the conditions of slaves crossing the Atlantic. Um, and it's put together in a, in a pretty powerful and compelling autobiography where we do have like a lot of legitimate tension here where he's like betrayed, bought off, uh, to, sold to others, I should say. Um, uncertain at times of what's happening to him, seeing crimes, unable to do anything. These are really, really horrific experiences. If, anything, if this was like dramatized at some point, which I can't believe it hasn't been yet. I'm not quite sure why, but this this would make a really good story to put on film because of all these moments. Maybe there's just too many, right? It's just kind of too horrific at times. Um, especially the first half, I, I think up to his freedom, you could you could you could make a really interesting story here um, on film if you're willing to deal with it honestly. I think. Um, but anyways, um, slave narratives are, are, are going to be stories of resistance. For the most part, they are because they're involving people who run away. But also the very act of writing down their life story when the white ruling class depended on their silence for keeping slavery is a form of resistance. But you had to learn to write. You had to escape captivity. You had to challenge racial slavery in their everyday ways. Equiano had to get funding from the very people who were keeping slaves. Uh, as we see in the subscriber list. Um, so these narratives come from us from people who are resistors. They are disruptors um, of the system. People who ran away or purchased their freedom in some way. They're unique individuals who could document this story. But that, that's why they feel such a burden to represent humanity for the millions who are worked to death unable to speak um, and I think that's an important aspect uh, to keep in mind when we think about Equiano's book also when we think about when this was published this was published two years before Thomas Paine's The Rights of Man when the French Revolution was breaking up this book came out right um, a few years before the vindication of the rights of women I mean this enlightenment period is pretty amazing uh, in terms of like pushing the boundaries of of what rights mean. It didn't take long. I mean, in a sense, I'm thinking of the radicalism of the American Revolution, but the radicalism of the Enlightenment, right? I, I know it's popular to kind of pick on the Enlightenment these days, but geez, like the French Revolution in particular forced a, a push into the boundaries of freedom, right, for other groups. Payne and Equiano obviously stand on the same side of that debate. Um, Gronasau, he he doesn't seem he would, right? Uh, Equiano is part of this libertarian tradition in the anti-slavery movement, which grouped with ideas of equality and human rights, the rights of man. Now, it's controversial, of course. Some have claimed Equiano is an African-American, like born in Barbados or whatever. It wouldn't change much of the story, actually. But anyways, why spend so much time on the social history of the Igbo people? I think it's the longest chapter in the book, actually. But he's trying to set clear moral differences between European civilization and the culture of his birth. Differences, but and similarities. He's trying to create a common humanity. That's why he contrasts his people with the Jews, I think. But also 
their moral failings. Like he, he doesn't think like the monogamy uh, double standard is a good thing uh, in their culture. And he thinks there's things to be criticized. But he also points out it was relatively egalitarian compared to Europe. Um, he kind of wants to point out that it was, despite having slavery, it was a relatively egalitarian society compared to Europe. Um, social distinctions existed, but they're not manifest in gross displays of wealth and power. Quote, as our manners are simple, our luxuries are few. Our manner of, of living is plain. So it's a, it's a dialogue with Europe. And I think that's why it's important to do it. So if he's not from Africa, you understand why he included Africa there, right? And then, of course, he, he talks about his process of enslavement. And he could have got that story from, from anyone else, from any other sources and accounts that are out there. Um, but most of the narrative actually focuses on his labor in various ships, uh, at least the first half of the book, um, both in slavery and freedom. But we're focusing in this episode on the slavery part of it. Uh, nevertheless, the line between slavery and freedom is very clear. Right? And Equiano, more than Grossenau, wants to say there's a clear moral line between freedom and slavery. I hope there's no <laughs> dispute about that. Um, he would acknowledge exploitation exists on many levels, like Gronosau does. Um, but masters mean both the commanders of the ships that Equiano worked on as a free man and f when he was owned. Right? So... There is an idea, yeah, he was exploited as a free man too, as a slave, but that's morally distinguishable for Equiano, and again, I hope for us. Um, since he was not a plantation slave at this point, it wasn't as radical a change for him as maybe a plantation slave who, who through some luck, got his freedom. Um, but... I think it also explains why Equiano has to spend so much time with his politically powerful prose emphasizing plantation slavery in, in really empathetic ways. Because I don't think he feels his experience as a sailor is quite enough. Um, even when he's talking about his time as a sailor on the, the transatlantic slave trade, he talks about like the suffering of others. And I think that's significant too. I think some of the most powerful slave narratives do emphasize the suffering of others, not the one who got out, but the ones who got left behind. Um, now, obviously, exploitation and violence were not reserved for enslaved men and women. Equiano is clearly open about exploitation across the whole system. I keep thinking of many-headed Hydra when I read books like this, but he writes, for instance, while we were at Gibraltar, I saw a soldier hanging by his heels at one of the moles. I thought this was a strange sight, as I had seen a man hanged in London by his neck. At another time, I saw the master of a frigate towed to shore on a great team by several men on the warboats and discharged the fleet, which I understood was a mark of disgrace for cowardice. On board the same ship, there was also a sailor hung up at the yardarm. In this way, Equiano suggesting that the freemen working on the ship contained its own brutalities and degrees of unfreedom. But... Because he works as a slave and as a free man, Equiano has the power to make a distinction between what that actually means. Um, it gave him the space to earn some money to secure his eventual freedom. He was able to make money on the side. 
Uh, he got some responsibility uh, to the chagrin of some of the more racist elements on board the ship. Um, the least autobiographical chapters are five and one, one and five. Um, but five is the core of his anti-slavery writings. One is the core of his argument of dialogue with, with Europe more broadly. Five is like the moral punch in the gut, where he explores the nature of plantation slavery in the Caribbean sugar islands. Um, we don't need to recount all this, but he does show that violence to the system was developed in concert with efforts of slaves to secure their liberty. Um, it's all based on power. Um, so I think it's clear how we can read this. Um, now, less interesting to me is the second half, um, but I think we have to deal with this as a separate episode almost because it does talk about him in in freedom, and I think I want to take up some of these issues about that contrast between slavery and freedom and his movement towards being an anti-slavery activist and more about his audience, maybe, and, and things like that, and his desire to return to Africa. All these things is is important to talk about in the next episode. So I'm going to leave it at that, um, but this is a really good book. I've, I've read it a couple of times already. Um, yeah, you should... You should check it out if you if, if you don't. I got one more episode to talk about Oloda Equiano, um, and then I think we're just going to do one episode on the, all the remaining, maybe two on Harriet Jacobs, but um, but this one's I like the longest of these slave narratives. So that's it for now. Uh, thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time. Like the band that Moses led, gods are gonna trouble the water. Oh, whoa, 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 whoa,